Hi everyone, welcome back to the High Point 101 podcast, where we'll continue to gain an in-depth understanding of what it looks like to be a participating member in the body of Christ here at High Point Church. I'm Jason Horton, the pastoral intern at High Point, and in this episode, myself, Nick Gibson, the lead pastor, Tim Check, our pastoral fellow, and Luke Zika, the director of student ministries here, will be discussing the doctrines that are adhered to at High Point Church. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, welcome to HP 101. This podcast is on the doctrine of High Point Church. In front of you, you should have your HP 101 binder, which goes through all of our bylaws, all of our doctrinal statements and scriptural references. And I'm joined here today, my name is Tim Check. I'm joined here today with Luke Zika, Jason Horton, and Pastor Nick Gibson. And we're excited to talk with you today about what High Point believes in a number of different areas and discuss why those things are important. And I want to start off today by asking this first question, why is doctrine important? Hmm. Um, Nick, give us, give us your best answer. Why is, why is doctrine important? Um. If I said a sentence to you and it had words, but you had no idea the meaning of any of those words, then we wouldn't be communicating, right? Um, in, God, with God, in God revealing himself to us, he's given us a kind of language to speak about him in as he's spoken and shown himself. And having definiteness in what we say isn't a vice, it's a virtue, right? Um and so the, the point of doctrine is to try to be as clear in our language as possible about what we mean when we talk about God and ourselves and anything related to Christian faith, which is, of course, everything. And so um, that's important. It, secondly, it's important to know when something's wrong, right? If something is unacceptably wrong, if it's diseased in some way, spiritually speaking, you have to be able to say this and not that. Right. Um, and sometimes biblical language isn't enough. So for example, in um, the, the, the early, um, the end of the, of the second century of the Christian church into the third century, um, the, the, for example, there was a controversy called the Arian controversy, which had nothing to do with race. It had to do with the divinity of Jesus. And um, all of the Arians who believed that Jesus was essentially a created being, right. Um, nodded at every verse of the Bible. So when the when the Orthodox Christians were like, well, what about this verse? What about this? They go like, yep, yep, yep. Oh, we believe that. We just mean this by it. Oh, we believe that. We just mean that by it. And it wasn't until like Athanasius and company came up with like a bunch of affirmations that were not from the Bible, but were clearly implied constructively from all the different verses of the Bible taken rightly, right? That the Arians faced statements they couldn't affirm. It differentiated those who believed in the scriptural doctrine of Christ being the uncreated son made man, as opposed to the first of God's creations, right? Um, which made him not God, essentially, right? And so um, so there's a number of reasons. Those are probably the, the biggest ones, that we are intelligible with each other so that we can know our faith, so we can understand something of its structure as it interrelates to itself, and also when we know something is bad, wrong, or diseased, so that we can identify it for what it is. 
Yeah. What came to mind to me right away is just the Bible is a, a long book. And so it is helpful to compile yeah. what is the key stuff, like what makes up our faith? What are its absolute essential components that if you took this away, everything would just fall apart? And so it's helpful that throughout the many centuries, believers have compiled what is the core stuff. And that's kind of what we're walking through today of like, if you understand this stuff, this will really help you as you're reading the Bible. And this will give you a sense of what is the Christian faith? What is the most essential parts of it to understand? And um, it kind of is yeah. it's just helpful to see that right in front of you. Yeah, that's really good, Luke. Uh, and that's probably the best answer. So theology or doctrine is summarized in things we call creeds. Yeah. Right. And you can't have a creed, which is a summary of theology, unless you have theology. Right. So you have to first mm-hmm. have theology and doctrine. And then you say, OK, now how do we summarize this to be helpful for people who don't spend all their time thinking about this, but are going to spend all their lives living it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you need statements of faith or articles of faith or creeds, which make that possible. And those creeds and start statements of faith are extraordinarily helpful for the daily believer. Right. And, right. and that's the that's another major reason we have doctrine so that we can summarize it into creeds and articles of faith. Right. right. Yeah. We don't have to go back and sort out the basic stuff each day. We can, right. Right. We can. It's, it's, you know, cement it down. And then from there, okay, mm-hmm. how do we live in light of this stuff? This stuff's established. This stuff where our foundation is built on. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good. We're, we're in agreement. Now, what do we do now? That's the interesting conversation. That's how we live, but we don't have to rehash the basic stuff, every decision we're making, you know yeah. what I mean? So right. it's helpful to summarize it all. Right. Yeah. Okay. I see it as a tether to 2000 years and, and, in, of the New Testament history, and then thousands of years before that of scriptural history, that we can tie our beliefs to the meanings of those words that we uh, declare as as truth uh, throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So as we go through here, we will kind of be discussing the most important points of each doctrine, and and probably hear some thoughts from these guys about the significance of those points, what it, what it means for us today in the, the binder. It has both for each section. Uh, we've got 14 different sections listed on our, um, our play sheet here with various subsections. So yeah. we're going to have to be efficient <laughs> yeah. and uh, keep moving. But I encourage you, if you're listening and going through this membership class, to write down questions that you have based on what we say. And we'll be able to discuss those in the next uh, in-person or virtual class, uh, membership class that we we have together. So um, without further ado, let's dive right in. The, the first doctrine that we're talking about is the Bible. Um, Luke, do you want to start us off on um, what what is the Bible? What yeah. isn't the Bible? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dive just to, to be brief with this is very challenging, but this mm-hmm. is the book that we as believers um, get our truth from and believe God has spoken through. So we believe the Bible is inspired um, and therefore in its original form, it was inerrant. It did not have error. And so while there were human authors writing Um, the Bible, writing the various parts of the Bible down. And there's um, a number of authors that have actually written the Bible. Um, They were led by God through the Holy Spirit to write. And so um, we kind of think of it as there's like two authors. It's like there's God and then there's the human author. 
And so the Bible is essentially the story of God's redemption. It is the story from the fall, from Adam and Eve in the beginning, um, and then God building um, the people of Israel. And then ultimately Jesus comes and he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. And then we see the church establish and we get instructions for how to live as believers. And so we believe the Bible is true. We believe it is helpful. The Bible is um, it's living and active. It's it sort of um, when we read it, we believe that God works on our hearts as we study it today. And um yeah, we are still, you know, none of the, we don't have any of the original manuscripts or the original, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the actual original autographs, autographs, that's it. Um, so what scholars have done is they have compiled all of the copies that we have together. And um, through those, we've kind of made sense of what the originals say. Um, and so... Yeah, that's what we have in front of us. Um, it's translated mainly from Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. Um, and so it's really our sort of anchor for understanding God's will for our lives and understanding him better. And so we study it. We preach it on a Sunday. If you come and hear one of our sermons, we're not making stuff up. We are preaching what the Bible says. Everything that we're saying from the pulpit is based out of scripture. Um, we believe it has authority in our lives. It has, you know, like that main authority for what we should believe and how we should live our lives. We don't believe the church and scripture sort of have equal authority. Um, we believe that the Bible has um, kind of that sole authority in our lives and that's the way God has spoken to us. And so, um, yeah, it's the way we know God better. It's the roadmap for our life and it is the story of God's salvation arc throughout history. And, um, mm -hmm. I guess that's my little <laughs> summary right. of the Bible. I, I'm sure I missed some things there, but yeah. Um, other points that anybody wants to add briefly. Yeah. I mean, the emphasis of the Bible is, is salvation in the, in the broadest possible sense, both personal salvation and the outworking of the kingdom of God in all of creation. Right. Um, I, I think it's also important to recognize that our doctrinal statement says the Bible itself is the sole and final source of all that we believe. Mm -hmm. And that's not technically true. That's functionally true. So that, so in a place, so like as you reason through things theologically, like what does God want? There's more than literally the text of the Bible that you think about, right? Like we obviously have scientific beliefs, like what we think um, is happening around us. We have, we do consult tradition. Other people have thought other than us. And we consult them. We all have experiences and our experience very much dictates how we relate to things. We all think by using the faculty of reason, right? And we, and everything we do assumes that we believe in the basic validity of reason, right? And yet scripture is the foundation and check and source and authority for all those things. And so in a church like High Point, after we go through all this reasoning, someone will stand up at the congregational meeting and say, where is it written? Like on what ba what is written in the scriptures on which we are basing all of this other thinking that we're doing about what we're saying, and for us that 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 wins the day. Like you need to be able to show that what you're saying either is a proper application of what is written in the scriptures, or um, does not contradict. That is, it has the core value we have. I've always called biblical integrity. That in relationship to the Bible, the thing that you're saying has integrity. Right. And th that's how we, that's how we adjudicate that. But we recognize like as we, as we work through our lives together, following God, we're going to use more sources of knowledge than just the scriptures. 
But the relationship to, of all that knowledge to the scriptures is always going to have an integral relationship integrated into what scripture teaches. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just so anyway, yeah, let's move on. Yeah, let's go. Uh, we're going to go on to the Trinity here and uh, the three persons of the Trinity. And when I say the Trinity, I'm, I'm saying that we believe there is one God. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. Uh, and yet we believe that God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, who are all co-equal and co-eternal and yet act in different ways. Generally, we think of the Father as the providential ruler and almighty maker, and the Son as the one who became the Christ and is therefore the Savior, right? And that the Spirit is the one who is in communion with us and working and present with us most directly. Um, but there's, it's just things overlap very profoundly in the Trinity because so there was this, there's painting in the Greek Orthodox Church that was meant to depict the Trinity, and there's this essentially a picnic, and there's these three women holding hands, and sort of moving around a table, like they're all one, they're holding hands, but they're three different persons. But when you look closely at the women, they're the same woman. And the church has always tried to like come up with ways to imagine what it means that God is one in essence or substance, and three in persons. But what it hasn't struggled with and shouldn't struggle with in the face of skeptics is that such a claim is a contradiction. Because a contradiction is when you claim that two two things that are the same thing are the same and different at the same time. And the Christian church has never argued that God is one in essence and three in essence, or one in substance and three in substance, or one in person and three in person, but has always mm-hmm. affirmed that God is one in substance or essence and three in persons. Right. So you can substantiate very easily, actually, philosophically, that the doctrine of contradiction, doctrine of the Trinity is not a contradiction, but it is paradoxical in the sense that we don't under really fully understand how those categories completely go together. And yet we might imagine that just as our own being is kind of complex, that we're like this ensouled, conscious, physical animal being in which our brain it's very hard to reduce human consciousness to brain but you can't make much sense of human consciousness without the human brain like there are a lot of relationships that we do not understand in our own makeup as human beings the idea that we who don't understand our own makeup as human beings may have some misunderstandings about the makeup of the, of the divine being that could possibly be more complicated complicated than ours stands to reason i think yeah what to me has been most important to remember about the Trinity or what's been most helpful as you wonder, like, why, why do I need to think about this or why is this so important is um, it tells us that God has existed in relationship for all time, that there are three persons and they've all had this perfect relationship with each other. And it's really cool to read, especially in the Gospels, to see how Jesus talks about the Father and the Spirit so much, like his his ministry, he's, he, he is sent from the Father and the Spirit is coming after him, but he's led by the Spirit. They clearly have this really deep, interconnected relationship. And so it just shows us that God is relational. Um, he is like deeply to his core relational. And, um, and so as we are getting to know God, we can know and trust that he is a relational God who is loving and um, he has existed perfectly in the Trinity as um, the Trinity all love and, you know, kind of like serve one another in some different interesting ways. And so mm-hmm. our relationship with God, kind we get to kind of take part in that. And we know that God has been doing that for all, you know, for all eternity, really. 
Yeah, and the relational reality of God is something that's so key to us as well. Um, like even from the very beginning of creation, um, I talk about uh, the Father being the that Almighty Maker, like Nick was saying. And, and yet, even in the very first page of the Bible, we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters at, at the first instant of creation. And then in in the very beginning of John, telling us about um, who Jesus is. Um, we see that the word was with God in the beginning and that all things were made through him. Nothing was made without him. So in coexistence, in their co-eternal natures, they're able to to create these miraculous wonders we see around us. And and, and without that real relational aspect, then there's really no significance to, to us as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jason, I don't know if you... <laughs> Uh, Nick, go ahead real quick. Yeah, I just do want to add quickly, though. That is correct, what they've said about the relational nation of God and its implications, I think. However, that is something that people are really into right now in the 2,000-year history of the church. At other times in the history of the church, they were really into the authoritative structure of the hierarchy of the Trinity because their societies were much more hierarchical, much more focused on hierarchy and authority and response and submission and responsibility. And as they try to understand their societies in relationship to authority, responsibility, and hierarchy, and how to live those out with integrity rather than corruption, they they saw that the Trinity is hierarchical and that mm-hmm. they should learn how they could be hierarchical in a just and, and flourishing creating way, right? Because that was the question they brought to the Trinity. So just remember – that's true. What, what they said is true, but like, there's a yeah. lot of things you can get out of the doctrine of the Trinity, depending on the questions you are asking it. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really great point, Nick. And it, it would help us to, to clarify here in this podcast that our intent in discussing all of these different doctrines is not to give you an entire picture of what all of these things can mean <laughs> to every individual person. We're giving you the very fundamentals of these doctrines. Uh, the church itself exists to continue the education around uh, these truths. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're supposed to be supporting what doctrines you should believe in to become a member of High Point. Yes. Right. And yeah. so to become a member of High Point, you have to believe that God is triune, that he right. is three in persons and one in essence or substance. You have to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. You don't necessarily have to affirm any of these, any of the speculative applications we make on the basis of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The next uh, doctrine we're talking about is humanity, which Jason, you uh, kind of introduced when you started talking about God creating human beings in His image, uh, creating them male and female. Um, do you want to kind of give us a rundown of of humanity and and what High Point believes about human beings? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it just makes it makes sense that if God is the creator of all things that we are his creation, right? We don't fall outside of that scope of all things. So we believe here at High Point that all human beings were created by God and in the image of God. We, we also believe that that was, that was an immediate act, that this didn't come about through the process of evolution, um, but that God spoke us into existence through his power and we came to be as humanity. Um, the, the, the whole purpose then of us existing as humans, bearing the image of God, is to glorify God, is to worship God. Because of his worthiness in having created the entirety of the universe and his holiness. Um, yeah, human beings were also, um, through this creative process, given the ability through their 
image-bearing nature to choose between good and evil, to, to make a distinction between those things. Um, and, and because of that image-bearing reality, we believe that all human life is intrinsically worth uh, an incalculable amount simply because God has placed his image on us. Um, we believe that all human life is sacred mm-hmm. from birth to death. Yeah. Um, so Jason explicitly said that like our, our, um, our uh, bylaws, if you read the doctrinal statement, it says that human beings were created by an immediate act of God and not by a process of evolution. However, um, there are people who are members at High Point who believe in some form of an evolutionary origin of human beings. And that has not been a barrier for membership. Um, and people hold those views and they discuss them freely at High Point. And High Point is home to people who believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, literally young earth creationist. There's like 50 views between that and gradualistic evolution is the source of everything. And there's probably, I don't know, there's maybe 75 different understandings of how the origins happened. Um, putting uh, Genesis 1 and the early chapters of Genesis together with what we know scientifically about the world. Um, however, I will say this. Though... That is an area of where people can be in quote, substantial agreement and maybe and not necessarily disaffirm evolutionary origins of human beings. When you get to the level of wanting to be an elder, you go from having to be in um, substantial agreement with the doctrinal statement to being an enthusiastic supporter of the entirety of the doctrinal statement. And so... Um, where the the doctrine of the church is at this moment is that if somebody is an enthousi- enthusiastic supporter of an el- evolutionary source of human life, of human beings, none of those folks are on the elder board. So people should know that about High Point. Um, every time we go through the bylaws that I've been here in the last 10 years, people have suggested that we take that line out. And so it's, it's constantly debated because it's not in the Bible, right? Like there wasn't even a theory of evolution that used that word until the last couple hundred years. And so it's not literally a Bible word or anything that it rejects. Um, that's a um, that's a judgment that was put in by former saints at the church. And so, but now it, with modern neurology, with the way um, the field of sociology and psychology is, everything in our statement on creation is disputed quote, scientifically, not just the evolutionary beginning of human beings, but also the idea that human beings, quote, possess the capacity for Christ-likeness, that every human being has the ability to be like Jesus, regardless of temperament or birth or whatever, and that humanity is endowed with the power of a rational and responsible choice between good and evil, that we have the ability to to providently order by reason our choices and our spiritual emotions and can control ourselves, right? There's a lot of counseling psychology theory that just does not believe that, right? And that we believe in the sanctity intrinsic worth of human lives from conception to natural death. The idea that human lives are intrinsically, morally, that they have this kind of sanctity is is widely disputed as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that same, same passage in, in Genesis 1, where it talks about God being, God creating man- um, in his image, he talks about creating us male and female. And uh, Luke, can you give us a, a little bit in a look into what High Point believes about gender and sexuality? 
here at Hyperion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we hold that there are two distinct genders that are complementary to each other, that they're um, they're meant to be paired together and they kind of bring out the best in each other, I suppose, um, and that there are important roles that we can sort of trace through scripture um, for men and women that kind of start with Adam and Eve. Um, and so... Yeah, we hold, I guess, what we what is kind of called the traditional view of marriage um, that is between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of implies sexual morality as well, that to be um, that's to hold to sexual purity is to um, hold to sex is between a man and woman who are married. And any act of sex outside of that is considered sexual immorality. It's sinful. Um, and so that's essentially the. Yeah, spark notes of that, I guess. And it's yeah. important that because we believe in these fundamentals, doesn't mean that we're fundamentalist about them. Right. Yeah. Right. So, like, yeah, we believe that God has created two genders. That doesn't mean we like smack people who have gender dysphoria. Oh yeah, right. right. Like, we believe that gender dysphoria is a real thing that people have. It's it's a very difficult condition. People in in that condition need an enormous amount of love and compassion and and interest. And you can there's a lot of things you can believe at the same time. Yeah. Right. And so. Um, it is the main issue I've walked through with just people in my life, people in the church, people in youth group, people, just friends, like how, how do we reconcile how I'm feeling and this doctrine? And, um, I do ultimately yeah. believe it's, it's great news and it's, it's a wonderful doctrine and it's a thing to keep talking about. Great. Uh, Nick, what is, what is the fall? Yeah. Okay. So the fall, um, so the fall is the idea that human beings were created entirely good by God, that there is nothing bad in creation in all of creation, that God created that way. But everything that God created had the capacity to be misused because it was creative by nature. Because it was creative by nature, it was useful and therefore could be used for many different things. And so by giving some creatures, whether angels or humans, the capacity for rational thought, by using rational thought can be positively used or misused if it's misused so as to create a disobedience to god or the truth you could then act that out with all of the things that are in creation right and it turns out that that's exactly what human beings did and what and what devils or fallen angels did before that that those god endowed with the capacity to choose morally and to reason through things with rationality had the capacity to choose themselves rather than god And some angels did so, and subsequently on the basis of a certain kind of temptation, our first parents did so. And when that happened, numerous things in creation then were broken, cursed, fallen, whatever word you want to use there, that is put into a state of being both broken and misused and under God's judicial curse. Mm -hmm. The things aren't as good as they should be because of a a punishment adjudicated that we incredibly deserved because of our rejection of him as the provident one. And because, because he's the ruler, the minute you kick out the ruler, what you get is disorder. And so all of creation entered into a kind of disordering from biological systems to our own emotions, which produce lusts and hatreds and angers and all kinds of things. And so in that sense, you can't ever look at something bad in creation and say, that's God's fault. That's, that's part of what this doctrine is getting at is no, we have broken and bent and caused things to be cursed in creation. Mm -hmm. And there's a dual nature to reality. There's God's good creation and there's the brokenness of the fall. And so when you see something, you you're like, well, that shouldn't be that way. That's probably how God feels too. Right. 
right? And he is enduring it because much of his cursed creation he wishes to save and redeem. Right. And because of that, there's a process of redemption by which he is sorting out, choosing some and redeeming some of that fallen creation, which is what we're experiencing now, his work of redemption. Right. Yeah, because a lot of people who I've talked to have have really struggled with this whole concept because even if humans were the ones who sinned, God still should have known this would have happened and still, you know, kind of made people with a capacity. And so all this evil is sort of ultimately God's fault. And um, while there's that maybe could make kind of sense in some ways, um, we see from from the moment the fall happened, like the redemption story begins. We're like, that's the rest of the Bible is God being like, okay, let's fix this. (laughs) And so clearly God is not just okay with everything falling apart and evil entering the world and, you know, um, everything just collapsing. Like he has gone to such great lengths to fix it, sending his son, Jesus, who would come down as a man who would suffer, who would become um, the curse, like have the curse on his shoulders, become like the penalty, like take on the penalty of our sin on his own shoulders. Um, God did a lot to fix what the curse brought in and to defeat Satan and to overcome death. And that is clearly he's so passionate about doing that and he's gone to great lengths to do it. And so, um, yeah. God is and there's the- no expectation on God to do that. You know, there's there's no reality where God has to do that. That's to do a, acts a- of redemption, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I think also one of the fallacies that people fall into, because this is really, people don't realize this is an emotional objection more than a rational one, yeah. is it assumes that God has complete control over all counterfactuals and that he can do things that are contradictory. Yeah. So, for example, the very definition of freedom is the ability to choose A or B. Right. Mm -hmm. If God controls whether A or B is chosen, then was the choice free? Right. Now, some people say you can't have a compatibility between those two, but it's also possible that there are, if, if God allows A, then A could lead to B or C or it, or if he allows A, it will lead to B, which will lead to C. And God wants both A and C. He would prefer not to have B, but B is necessary to get to C. Mm. Right to say that, well, like, well, why can't God just go from right from A to C? Well, it's possible that that just isn't possible. Right, and the fact that God is omnipotent means that God can do everything that is possible. Right, right. He can't. He can't make a a circle that is a triangle. Right. And that that's not a limitation on his power. Well, and I've just right. I even talked about in the youth group. The phrase "God can do anything" is just like one of those common heresies that's spoken like freely today right. in the church. Like, no, he cannot right. do anything. Like, mm-hmm. it's insane. And, and one of the one of the simplest statements of that in the Bible is God cannot lie. Right. Yeah. And you're like, why can't God lie? I mean, God can say stuff. Right. Why can't he lie? It's like, well, it's because he can't be himself and be a liar because yeah. he's not a liar. Right, and if he tells a lie, then he's a liar, and he's he can't be both, right? It's it's the that's the common like, well, why you know why does God why can't God just like make all good happen and not evil? Well, one of the things that ends up getting back to is is that he can make contradictory things true at the same time. If God can make contradictory things true at the same time, then he can be both good and evil at the same time, which means right. the the earth could have nothing but evil in it. He could be a hundred percent providential over it, and he could still be a hundred percent good. Like, like a lot of the logical games that we use to attack and besmirch God, we don't actually take them to their logical conclusions. It's mm-hmm. what philosophers call an argument that proves too much, mm-hmm. right? Like you're, you think you've proved something against God. You've actually like proved everything. And so you, you find out you can't even attack God on that basis, right? Yeah, and, be, and, 
if you're really being rational, then that work, you figure that out. If you're really being emotional, thinking you're being rational and you just want to attack and, and besmirch God, it sounds so smart. You know? Yeah. Right. All right. We better keep yeah. moving. Yep. Um, it does flow nicely into our next doctrine, which is salvation, justification, and regeneration, where uh, we believe at high point that it is by grace alone that people are saved, um, conditional upon repentance, repentance, and in in some form forgiveness of others, as um, as uh, we don't have to get into now, but. Um, letting the mercy of God take hold of our heart and, and change us and, and create us into uh, the new creation. Um, but salvation itself uh, is conditional upon repentance and which is defined as turning towards God, um, turning away from sin and, and towards God and, and his character. Um, and that in, as Nick was talking about the, judicial nature of God's punishment on the world that in salvation in a in a same judicial manner um, Christ's righteousness is uh, uh, imputed to us that we are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's uh, sacrifice for us on the cross we believe that his atonement was a, a sub- substitutionary atonement where he took the place of uh, of sinners, the place of those who believe in him. Um, and that we become new creations as a result that the Holy spirit, uh, gives us, um, a new or renews our, renews our spirit. And, uh, we believe uh, we're given a, a disposition of obedience towards God. And, uh, second Corinthians five seventeen, uh, and to the end of that chapter, uh, is a great place to look at, at what the new creation uh, looks like the old has gone, the new has come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you'll, and you'll probably hear us talk about how um, salvation is received through faith and repentance. That's kind of, it's sort of those two words together. If you're wondering, mm-hmm. how do I become a Christian? What are, what's the key? It's faith and repentance. So faith is, it's not just believing in something crazy. Um, or it's, it's trust. Like that's maybe a more helpful word. It's actually mm-hmm. saying, I am going to rely on Jesus mm-hmm. and Jesus alone to be my savior, to be the one who can forgive my sins. So that's the first part. It's trusting in Jesus and sort mm-hmm. of hanging your life on him, putting everything you have in him. And um, repentance is this concept of kind of like turning around and slash or changing your mind. And so it's deciding that mm-hmm. the life you are living, you are no longer going to be living this, the the sin that Jesus died for. You are going to be turning from, you don't want to live that way anymore. So it's, it's that it's, I trust Jesus and I'm going to kind of put my life on it and I'm going to um, repent from my sin, turn from my sin, turn from the life I was living. Jesus died for it. And so I'm not going to live in it any longer. Um, and, uh, Tim, you mentioned the word grace and that's just a word that I feel like could, is helpful to be defined. So yeah. grace is, it's, it's a gift that is undeserved. Um, it's something that is so wonderful that shouldn't be given out in the first place. And, um, so our salvation is a gift because we, all rightfully should and deserve to be separated from God forever. That is what our sin has earned us. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus decided to suffer in our place and actually take that punishment on himself. We should have rightfully earned death. Um, and so Jesus decided to die 
on our behalf. And so we kind of have a, we switch places with them where Jesus takes our penalty, says, Hey, I'll, I'll take that from you. I will die in your place so that you can go free and you can live. And so when we trust in Jesus, we will die physically um, unless Jesus returns before that point. Um, but we will live eternally with God forever. And I'm sure we'll get into that more as, as we keep going. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for people who aren't used to these words to recognize the word salvation is used as like a catch all. So mm-hmm. all of these things, justification, regeneration, sanctification, glorification are all part of salvation. Salvation is a general word that just means rescued. Right. Right. And how are you rescued? Well, God justifies you and counts you innocent. He regenerates you from your dead heart and he, mm-hmm. right. He changes you by making you holy sanctification. And then he takes you to be with him and, Right, in, in glorification and so on. So and there's lots of different aspects of salvation. Salvation has, I don't know, 20, 30, 100,000 subcategories. Right. Um, <laughs> but it, and so that's the general word we talk about of being saved. I've been saved. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I've received all these things through Christ and his sheer gracious generosity. Yeah, so often we can use the term salvation just referring mm-hmm. to justification. Right. And we can quickly lose out on the fullness of the term salvation, which does include uh, sanctification and glorification, like Nick mentioned. Um, um, Yeah, and those are next up on the list as well as we keep moving here. Um, Nick, uh, you've been talking about sanctification in our First Thessalonians sermon series. If this is being listened to three years from now, go back and listen to that because it's been great. Um, Give us a, a quick rundown on sanctification. Okay. Yeah, sanctification is the idea, is, is built on the word sanctus, which is Latin, which comes from hagios in Greek, which is to be made holy or to be set apart. So holiness is to be set apart for a certain purpose and to be useful and used for that purpose. So it doesn't mean something that's pretty, that gets set on the shelf, that nobody ever touches because it's so sanctified. You know, S- something that's sanctified is for a certain work. So when God sanctifies us, he sets us apart for our purpose which is to bear the image of God renewed in the world for its redemption and good, right? So sanctification is not our, the removal from real life, but it's reshaping us for our divine and, and um, sacred purpose in the world mm-hmm. to be God's image bearers and to bring redemption and creativity and flourishing to the world. Does that make sense? Like Jesus. And so um, a, a very simple way to talk about that is to be, is the more we become like we're supposed to be in the image of God, the more we're going to be like the one who perfectly imaged the image of God in man, which is Jesus Christ. So sometimes Christians just say being like Jesus, mm-hmm. which is perfectly fine shorthand for it. It's being like Jesus, Christ likeness, right? That is mm-hmm. to, to become the thing that we were declared in our justification to actually be, be holy, to grow in right. real goodness, to live in true spiritual and moral beauty towards our neighbors and towards God. Right. And yeah. then glorification is the ultimate end of all of these things. When God mm-hmm. brings them to their full completeness in, in an after final judgment and in what we refer to as heaven, heaven or eternal life. Does that make sense? So it's our, it's glorification is the entrance in and the transformation that brings us in to our final state with God. Mm-hmm. I think a, a good way to visualize sanctification is if, uh, faith and repentance is like a rootedness in Christ and in what he's done for the believer, then sanctification is a drawing on the sustenance of the Holy Spirit and producing fruit 
through the tree that is your life, right? So over time, you're going to continue to draw on that sustenance from the Holy Spirit and continuously grow fruit on that tree. Uh, and that fruit's going to be fruit that's pleasing to God, not not a rotten apple, but something that, that brings life and, and continues to give sustenance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, over time, as believers, we are transformed from um, the old creation. We are we are immediately changed from old creation to the new creation in our justification, and yet transformed over time, um, kind of living into the sanctification that we've received, um, being set apart for God's glory, f- to be used like like how we talked about in creation, everything was in creation designed to be used. And we are now part of that in Christ uh, to be used for God's glory and, and for the working out of the, the kingdom coming in the world. Which eventually means that glorification. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what's exciting. It's not like we're just saved from hell. We're actually saved for right. something beautiful, yeah. something great. We get to live out a purpose that God has given us, and um, we are sanctified for that purpose. It's like we're used for something great. Um, yeah. And that's what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so that's that's why we, you know, people will throw out the claim that Christianity is too easy. Like you just, you say some prayer and then you, you that's your mm-hmm. ticket to heaven. And, um, it's, it's the reason we walk toward Jesus and the reason we want to live a life of holiness and godliness um, is because that's what we are created for. And that is our purpose. We get to live out um, through the power of the spirit, like Jason was talking about. And so um, it's not just say a prayer and get out of hell. It's it's invite Jesus into your life to walk with you for the rest of your life for you to, you to become more <laughs> like him and to bring his kingdom into fruition, which is just a great purpose that we get to live out. It's an eternal purpose. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nick, I like that. I like that you said that sanctification does not necessarily mean just this, like this pristine, like very clean thing, but that it's a set apartness, you know, like it's a, so, so the believer to be sanctified, it doesn't mean that you become a pastor necessarily. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to go into a very specific form of ministry, but it means that you minister the gospel no matter where you are called. The The next one is the believer security and perseverance. Um, yeah, so high point, um, we believe in something called the perseverance of the saints, Um and there's a lot that can be said on this. I think ultimately what is most important here and something that I realized, because I did not grow up in this tradition, actually, I grew up in a understanding that you could lose your salvation. And that created, um, for me, it, it it made Christianity a very scary thing. It felt very unstable, felt very insecure. Um, and so ultimately I just realized if Jesus earned my salvation, how, what could I do to unearn that um, if Jesus has covered my sins, what sin could I do that he would decide isn't covered anymore? And so, um, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, the cross is effective in saving people's lives, people who are sinners, people who were sinners when Jesus died for them and people who are going to sin after they've accepted Jesus. And so, um, yeah, there's a security in our salvation. And um, mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of scripture on this, on our security being in Christ and his mercy for us, his kindness, his love. Um, grace at the beginning was an undeserved gift. And so we believe that um, 
all true believers will persevere to the end and Jesus will accomplish his work through them. Um, and you can't sort of sing your way out of your ticket into heaven or something like that. Um, there's a lot of things we said there. I, I'm sure we've done other podcasts on that, but I guess that's kind of the the core. That's for me was very life giving when I realized, like, oh man, my salvation is it is a rock that I can actually rest my life in, and it's it's not about me performing for God or making Him love me or trying to impress Him. I can just I can grow, and and I won't I don't want to live in sin, but um, it's not about me making sure I don't mess up up too many times so that my salvation becomes like a little rocky or a little unsure it's it's secure in christ because of what he accomplished um and so i can put my hope in that being something i can hold on to and and as you had mentioned the holy spirit is my guarantee for that he has sealed me for um judgment day as being um his my name is written in the book of life and all true believers are written in the book of life and they will um live with god forever and um yeah that's maybe the right. the core of it but yeah there's anything else to add to that yeah and at the same time the the last uh sentence of this paragraph in the doctrinal uh statements says nonetheless we are warned not to take this lightly and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling right and to not essentially tread on the grace of god that has been given to yeah, us that's that's important because there are some passages that sound scary especially in the book of hebrews that mm-hmm. really makes this doctrine feel wobbly um to me those are just helpful guardrails for you to remember that like okay uh jesus did die for you and um Faith is something that should be lifelong, like you should be growing in godliness for the rest of your life. If you truly have accepted Jesus' gift and you have understood what he went through for you. And um, yeah, so it is the kind of thing that I don't think we live in fear of losing our salvation, but we should be in such awe that it's been given to us that um, the thought of entertaining sin in our life or um, backpedaling in our faith or, um, not giving our all for Christ just should just kind of shock us and, and just disgust us, I guess, um, because Mm -hmm. of knowing what Jesus went through for us. Um, and so, yeah, I do think the Bible says, Hey, you can be comforted that you will persevere. And there's, there's a great sense of peace in that, but there are also passages that's like, Hey, if, if you're just kind of flippant about this, you should be concerned. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're going to go on to uh, resurrection and immortality. We we believe that we will be raised from the dead uh, bodily, as Jesus was raised from the dead bodily, um, and that we will live forever with God um, in in bodily form. Uh, the glorified body, 1 Corinthians 15, has a lot to say about um, the glorified body I think that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Great. That's one we can catch up on a little time. Uh, We're talking about the church now. So the church uh, has, is universal and has, is instituted in local congregations. Um, Nick, I'm going to, I'm going to turn to you first um, and, and ask you about, ask you about the church. Um, can you give us some distinctives of the universal church and the local church as we see it today? Yeah. So our belief according to scripture is that one can't imagine that they're part of the universal church. That is all Christians everywhere that Jesus sees as Christians. 
and the local church, that is real concrete human beings who come together in the family of God to engage in the things Jesus told us to do, which include in this statement, worship, prayer, instruction in the word, observance, ob- observance of the ordinances, um, and to be disciplined according to God as manifested through the life of the risen Christ, which means church discipline. That is, if you're not, if you're living publicly against the way of Christ, the church is supposed to tell you that and to move you through discipline um, back into line with um, Christ-likeness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, and then there's a statement here about our, our doctrinal state, uh, our, our mission statement, and so on. I think the, the part that it was included more recently, and this is um, part of some additions relative to how we were going to respond to political and legal attacks against churches relative to um, LGBTQ um, institutional issues, things like gay marriage and non-discrimination hiring and those sorts of things. So we, we put in statements about what we believe about sexuality and so on, but we also added something at the bottom of this where it says, we believe that every person must be afforded compassion, love, kindness, respect, and dignity. Disrespectful and harassing behavior or attitudes directed towards any individual or group are to be repudiated and are not in accord with scripture nor the doctrines of high point church. Because we want to also make sure that everybody understood that um, we believe that not, not only should individuals not be attacked and harassed, but that we are one in Christ relative to groups we can't help but belong to. So high point would be categorically against racism, for example, that which is truly racism or those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And even if we have specific beliefs that other people would classify as a ism that's bad, we still don't need to act in ways that are disrespectful and harassing towards anyone. So even if I have to gauge in church discipline with somebody and say, look, you can't, you can't have an affair with this woman when you're married to your spouse and be like, that doesn't work. I still can do it in a way that's loving, kind, respectful, mm-hmm. and that accords the person their due dignity in Christ. In fact, me confronting them a, Require is required because of their dignity in Christ, but I can do it in a way that isn't disrespectful and harassing unless they see the loving action itself as harassing, which some people will, mm-hmm. but most reasonably people can tell the difference between acting towards somebody in a way that you feel convicted you must and being mean and harassing about it. And so um, Christians have always believed that, that the ends do not justify the means. Like how we do something actually comes first. Because as human beings, we actually can't control the ends. All we can control is the means by which we do things. Mm-hmm. And if we say, well, I can do whatever I want as long as I get the right result, that's idolatry according to Christian faith. You can't control any results, but you can control how you do something. And if you think you that something has to be sacrificed to get to the end that you want, in Christian faith, it is you who are sacrificed. Not just mm-hmm. you who make sacrifices, but you are the one sacrificed, not the other person, even if that other person is sinful. And so the self-sacrificial doctrine within Christian faith, which exists in almost no other faith, mm. you could argue that it exists in a certain kind of Hinduism, but I think in a really ugly way. I mean, like Mahatma Gandhi believed in that, but he also told the Jewish people that they should commit mass suicide as a protest against the Nazis. That I think that's a that's a perverted kind of self-sacrifice. Yeah. Um and so Christian Christian faith believes in it in a very specific kind, but what it also means is you don't get to kill your enemy to get what you want. It also means you don't get to bully, berate, and attack people. And so the church has to function in it in both inside of itself and in its word and action towards the wider community. 
that works with love, kindness, respect, compassion, and dignity, especially in the places where we profoundly disagree with the surrounding community and world and where we think what they're doing causes real harm. Hmm. Does that make sense? And so the more we are angry about, the more we disagree with what the world is doing, the more self-control we must assert in ourselves to be temperate Mm -hmm. in our action. And you'll see that in like the, in first Timothy three in Titus, the requirements of an elder, somebody who gets to speak for the church, like three or four different places are, are different tests for temperateness. Um, down below it, it talks about believers relating to the community and uh, based on various scriptures talking about seeking the peace and the prosperity of the community you find yourself in, um, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God, to obey the government um, until there is a direct command to disobey God um, inherent within it. Um, And we should pray for our leaders. We should um, speak kindly to uh, not only community leaders, but like Nick said, the wider community. Um, We are to engage the community around us, not to withdraw and be um, isolated, but to be a faithful witness in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing the church as an institution that breathes life into the community um, and, and seeks its good and not its, not its demise. Yeah. Let me make a couple comments about this. This is a place yeah. where there's a lot of conflict, right? Because um, when I was younger, like when I was 20 years old, that's 23 years ago, um, I didn't want my church to be political. And in those days, that was possible. Right. Because uh, American society had not progressed in its statism to the point where we decided that every single thing in human life was political. Part of the problem with statism or the belief that everything is political, everything is within the purview of the state, is that nothing is outside of the state. Right. Now, those who know their history know that I'm literally quoting Mussolini's fascism. Right now, we have not progressed to the point in America where literally everything is legally inside the state. Literally, as any society moves towards a set of views in which everything is inside the state, then that which the church must speak upon, which is everything God speaks upon, then the church's speech will be deemed increasingly more political, though it may not have changed at all. And so, in 2020 in the United States, and this is probably going to be true for at least the next 15 years, if not longer, um, wanting wanting yeah. your church to quote not be political isn't really going to be possible. Now, what the church can do is recognize where it's qualified and where it isn't. So, I can mm-hmm. say from the pulpit, abortion is categorically wrong in almost all cases because pre-born human lives are human lives and deserve dignity. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean then that I'm qualified to say what every policy in every institution in America ought to be. Right. Right. I might say, for example, it is morally wrong to ignore the poor. Right. That doesn't mean I can tell you what the marginal tax rate should be and how much of that money should be going to which entitlement programs for the poor and how we should designate people poor and all that. Right. And so sometimes sometimes preachers and churches and people in churches believe that they just can connect those two. And it's important to recognize that between your theology and your politics is should be your political philosophy, which does not come directly and completely from the Bible, 
Like it can be done theologically, but there's a lot of conversation to have about that. And then moving from that to policy requires science and prudence, right? Mm-hmm. And most of and, and government is really complicated right now. And the policy systems are very complicated. And to think that we know stuff because we listen to a little bit of media and we know what scripture says generally is probably very foolish in most cases. And the the BLM movement and, and seeking racial justice and also the COVID situation is a huge case for that. Because turns out there's a lot of dispute over what the science is with COVID. What really does help? What really doesn't help? What we should do? It's relationship to the economics, how economics can expand or retract under that. And then if we, but if we don't squash the disease, then maybe we'll have to be like um, put in our houses again. And if that's the case in the economy, like all those questions are not pastoral questions, mm-hmm. right? Similarly, like, whether or not there is systemic racism in the police, where, who, what's the real solution for it? What policies should be adopted? The idea that pastors know these things, I find laughable. But pastors ought to be able to say and know, A, racism is wrong. B, anybody who has power is going to be inherently tempted towards corruption. Police do have power. And so there has to be a continual renewal within police and policing relative to that power. Otherwise, hierarchies naturally produce corruption. Like these are things we know based on human nature and the, our theology of anthropology and mankind and those sorts of things that we can say. And so churches like like a, a church like High Point has to recognize we have to preach the whole counsel of God. Everything that God talks about, we need to talk about. It will be deemed political speech in a state in which everything is seen as political. But we can be wise and prudent, recognizing where our authority begins and ends mm-hmm. and try to model for the government that their authority should begin and end in certain ways. And if the government will recognize where it should begin and end and we recognize where we should begin and end, we can live in a beautiful, flourishing harmony, which should be our hope as Christians. Mm-hmm. Right. Our doctrinal statement for Christ's second coming does say we believe in the the personal, visible, imminent, and premillennial return of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, farther than that, it doesn't go into a lot of detail about, um, obviously, we could define some of those terms, mainly that Jesus will be bodily returning. Um, and Premillennial uh, is probably the most confusing for people. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, yeah. Do you want to give a, a Revelation twenty in its description of Christ's return um, describes Christ as returning in triumph to the earth and then reigning for a thousand years, i.e., mm-hmm. a millennium, right? And so some people have believed that would Jesus would just come back and then we would just have heaven, just just like that one step. Right. But there appears to be a era in which Jesus reigns on the earth before the final end in Revelation twenty. Now, Revelation twenty is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is written in code, right? Mm-hmm. So, does that mean a literal thousand years? Does that mean, like, is this the part of the story where it's being literally described so Christians will know what's going to happen? Or is this part of the code that we're supposed to know how to interpret, but maybe we don't, right? Right. And so, um, but a lot of Christians believe that the reason why a millennium is necessary is because there are numerous promises in the Old Testament that God has made to the Jewish people specifically related to Israel and their relationship to it that have not yet been fulfilled in a meaningful way. And that it's difficult to just say, well, God's just going to fulfill them in the church, right? If that's correct, then some environment is necessary for God to fulfill these promises, right? So for example, there's this, there's this promise in Isaiah that like, if somebody dies at a hundred years old, they'll be, they'll be seen as a young man, 
right? But they still die. Mm-hmm. But will they die at three or four hundred years old? Right. So the, the idea is like there's there's a time in planet Earth where things will be quote redeemed, but we won't be the final fully redeemed state, right? right? Which is odd. And so if you and so the reason why Christians like us tend to be millennialists or millenarians is the technical term is because is not because we we just think there needs to be this reign of Christ, but because mm-hmm. it seems to be in keeping with promises made in the Bible, and we think God fulfills His promises. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, believing in the premillennial return of Christ, all that necessarily has to mean is I believe that every promise God made, he will fulfill. Right. And if he needs him, let him to do it. He's going to have one. Right. Right. It can be that weak, or it could be, you believe there's literally a thousand year reign and that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Right. Which um, is quite a range. Right. The, one of the biggest things I take away from, from this doctrine is that this is, this is what we're hoping for as Christians. This is like the next big thing, you know, Christ coming back is, uh, you know, when we say, come Lord Jesus, uh, what, what John says at the end of his revelation, um, like that is our desire. Uh, and, and yet at the same time, God is patient to, um, desiring all to come to repentance and salvation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, do you want to move on to judgments? Yep. Um, uh, Luke or Jason, you want to kick us off with judgments real quick, very briefly? <laughs> um, sins will be judged, um, and <laughs> there will be a great judgment. Um, so for believers, their sins were judged, I guess we say, in Christ on the cross is what's technically written. So Jesus sort of took the penalty for our sin on himself. Um, and then... There are going to be two eternal states that all people will be in, either that's in the lake of fire separate from God or with God bodily on the new earth, um, enjoying him and his people forever in -hmm. his glory. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know what else to, Jason, anything to add to that? Yeah, I just, I like um, the scripture reference we have um, relating to the fact that believers' sins are judged in Christ on the cross. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin, so Jesus, to become sin for us. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus took on the entirety of our sin, um, our sin as individual beings, uh, and so that in him that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, and so it's that complete picture once again of even on judgment day, we're reminded of uh, the restored state brought to us um, through Christ's sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just to, uh, to clarify for some people that might not recognize this. So y- you might know that it says that believers works will be judged for rewards at the judgment seat of Christ at the time of his coming. We believe that all others will appear before God for judgment at the great white throne. Mm-hmm. Those redeemed shall be welcomed into heaven for eternity, while the unredeemed shall be consigned to the lake of fire. There's a, there's a long tradition, especially within revivalist, fundamentalist Christianity, of the, that believers do not appear before the great white throne of judgment. But they, they, um, they will go before the judgment seat of Christ, which is said to be different. And... Um, in charismatic circles, sometimes it's referred to as the Bema seat. 
the bema seat because bema is the Greek word for judgment used in that passage in Second Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's five ten, and so uh, I cannot make any sense of that distinction in the Bible. Um, as far as I can tell, we're all going to experience judgment, and if we're saved, then we are going to. It's going to go really well. If you look at First Corinthians five, Second Corinthians five ten, let me bring it up real quick. It says, "For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." Now, in one sense, you'd be like, "Done in the body." That sounds like judging our works. That sounds like somebody who's already approved in Christ, and God is determining what rewards that person might get. But, but, but it also says whether good or bad, right? And mm. um. So you can see a, a reasonable distinction there that people could say that the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne are different. I don't know that you can confirm that distinction. And so I think that Christians should recognize that there's a fundamental judgment as to whether or not we belong to Jesus and have been judged in Christ or not. Those who have, judgment is going to go very different for. And the main question is going to be how God adjudicates rewards. And those who are not with Christ aren't have not experienced that redemption and they will not experience salvation, right? Whether or not there's different judgments and different judgment seats and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Jesus says that the that the apostles will be on thrones and will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, when does that happen? And what part of the judgments is that? One of the things I think people don't fully understand is, is that God is very diversified and hierarchical in what he does. Like we don't even talk about how he does stuff in angels and how there's angels and archangels. And like he has all these mediating creatures and figures and attitudes and all these things that happen that, that are not as simple as God simply does X directly. And so my argument would be, you don't have any idea what judgment's going to be like. You don't know how many judgment seats there's going to be, who's going to judge who on right. what level, in what way or whatever. What we know is there's going to be a judgment. And ultimately, mm-hmm. God is going to reign over that in a great way, throne of judgment. And Christ will be involved in that judgment in his own judgment seat. And it's going to be very different for believers than for non-believers. And what you need to do to prepare for that day is to be in Christ mm-hmm. and then to live like Christ so that you will not be judged, saved, but affirmed and rewarded. Because God is not just gracious enough to save you. He's gracious enough to pour out generously reward on top of salvation. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is what is um, absolutely life changing about Christianity is just knowing that we will eternally live with God forever. Um, that, you know, this life, the Bible talks about this life just being like a vapor or like a blink of the eye compared to eternity. Um, and so we have all the motivation to accept Christ today because we know we will live and, and reign with him for an eternity, um, which is we can't even wrap our minds around what exactly that will be like. But it will be a very, very, very long time that we get to look forward to. Right. Awesome. Well, we just got a, a few things left. We've got baptism, uh, the Lord's Supper, and then um, I put church discipline on the end. We kind of covered church discipline a little bit earlier. Um the good news is that baptism and the Lord's Supper are laid out pretty clearly here in a lot of words. Uh, we believe at High Point, or we practice uh, believer's baptism. We believe that baptism is a sign of of someone's union with Christ um, through faith. That um, this is, you know, you've heard it. You've heard it said maybe colloquially that this is um, a. Uh, an outward symbol of an inward reality. And um, 
to, to publicly display an association with Christ and the church um, by immersion. And um, yeah, what else, uh, what else do you guys have on that? If, if anything. Yeah. So I, I need to give my last word here. Um, sure. And that is uh, that we do believers' baptism. It's sometimes called credo baptism, meaning I believe. That's what the Latin for I believe. That is your on your own profession of faith versus pedo baptism. That's a Greek word for child, child baptism. And, and um, High Point believes that you should be baptized on your own profession of faith. Mm-hmm. That everybody who's baptized in the Bible is baptized on their own profession of faith. In some ways, that's a minority view in the history of the church. The church very early started baptizing the children of believers, believing that they belonged to the covenant community of God like the children of Jews did. Mm-hmm. But we don't believe that that's an intentional continuity between circumcision and baptism. We believe that baptism is the signifying right of your own belief in faith into the people of God. And that it's no longer racial, but it is um, it is rooted in your own profession of faith. We do it by the mode of immersion because baptism signifies belonging to Jesus. That is, you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it also represents cleansing but also death and resurrection. And mm-hmm. only the mode of immersion takes in a visual sign of the death and resurrection that you experience in salvation. And lest you take lightly that as a believer, you must be baptized. It, it literally says in first Peter, it is baptism that saves you. It doesn't literally mean that you're not saved until baptism, but baptism is so linked to salvation itself that if you've believed in Jesus and you are refusing or refraining from baptism, you need to think about what that means about your faith and your willingness to obey the one who has called you mm-hmm. and how much faith you have in him if you're not willing to do so. Right. And so my advice is that if you believe in Christ, you should get baptized as soon as possible on yeah. your own profession of faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we see that in the right. book of Acts when people get saved, they get baptized. <laughs> and that like we see right. that in multiple stories that, that it, they're so inexplicably linked. Um, mm-hmm. And so it sort of um, was kind of a common expression when someone was baptized. It's like they became a Christian um, because right. they're just so closely linked together that um, they're kind of can be referred to as one of the same thing almost. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And if you have more questions about this, um, again, this this uh, packet here that you're probably reading off of goes into great detail about why High Point believes the things that it does. Yeah. Um, and feel free to, to ask more questions. Um, you know, if you perhaps were baptized as an infant in a in a pedo Baptist church, um, you can we can talk about what that means um we would um we believe that like nick said you should be baptized in your own profession of faith and therefore we do baptize people who were baptized as infants um seeing that as a um an intent of the parents to raise their child in the faith right and um so lastly the lord's supper there are three primary views of the Lord's Supper throughout um, churches, Christian churches today. Uh, the the Roman Catholic Church believing a, a transubstantiation where the bread and um, wine, which are the elements of the Lord's Supper, become the body and blood of Christ. Uh, the consubstantiation view of the Lutheran Church and um, primarily through Martin Martin Luther's um, kind of catchphrase of in with and under is um, 
that Christ's uh, that the bread and wine uh, become the body and blood of Christ alongside the the bread and the wine, um, and then a lot of other Christian churches believe that the bread and the cup symbolize uh, the death of Christ, and it, that it's not merely a symbol and and like void of power, but that it. It, it proclaims our, our unity with Christ, um, allows us to reflect and, and repent afresh. There's a number of, um, you know, if you look at the top of page 38, a number of reasons for um, doing communion. Um, and these are all really good. I, you know, for me, it's, and it can, it can feel a little weird, maybe if you're not used to this, or you might be wondering, like, why do we do this symbolic thing where we drink a little <laughs> juice and eat a cracker? Um, and just the reality is that we are forgetful and um, we right. lose we yeah lose touch with the importance of Christ's sacrifice for us. And so um, for once a month to have a moment where we actually do something physical to reflect on Jesus' death um, and how he gave his body for me to be saved is I found to be super important. Um, and so that's kind of one of the big reasons that we do it, it's, it's a practice that we do regularly to remind ourselves of Christ's sacrifice for us. And it's, it's a good kind of anchor. Um, and Jesus commands us to do this, like do this in remembrance of me. Do not, do not forget me and what I have done for you. Um, Jesus sacrificed for us. And so that's why we do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I, I also love the, the words of the apostle Paul and, First Corinthians 11, verse 26, he writes, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, mm-hmm. you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love that, it, that it's both uh, a, a somber realization of the penalty that was paid by Jesus Christ for all of us as his church. Uh, I love that, it, that, that we, we can have a, a certain sadness about the the grave cost that was that was paid for for our souls and i love that he says um we proclaim his death until he comes so it's it's a we, we're also looking forward mm-hmm. and we're also realizing the joy of of resurrection day for jesus and the coming uh uh rest full restoration of what god intended for creation for the believer as well um yeah i love that 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 the Lord's Supper is both those things at the same time, that there is there is a somber reality uh, about Jesus's crucifixion and uh, the joy that we can feel and, and realizing the joy that Jesus feels. Um, he says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, right? And so I, yeah, I love that the Lord's Supper is, is our way as a church, as a church of, of, of proclaiming that it's, it's perhaps one of our loudest proclamations. And so there's a lot to explore on this stuff. And uh, I would say have um, healthy discussions with other believers on these topics. Right. Sometimes Christians can just fight about this stuff. And yeah. um, we sometimes make this about like creating um, just this big list of things we believe. And if you don't believe all these same things, then we can't really get along or agree with each other. And that's not what this is meant or love each other. It's not what this is meant to do. This is meant to get us into right relationship with God and each other yeah. and to learn to walk with them well. And so doctrine mm-hmm. is um, 
an exciting, great thing that should create great unity um, and should draw us closer to God. And um, so if you're yeah. getting really stuck up on um, certain doctrines and if that is breaking fellowship, obviously there are some key things that you're going to have to agree with in order to really have true, deep, I guess, like brotherly fellowship, you know, like familial fellowship with um, others. And that's, um, you know, to be a part of High Point. Obviously, we welcome all people to come, but um, for mm-hmm. those who are going to be members who are really sort of a part of our family in kind of the deepest sense, um, we do want to agree on the main things. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that a lot of Christians will agree on the main things, and then these sort of lesser side things become um, just kind of arguments and people just getting frustrated with each other. So the, my main recommendation right. is obviously you got to get the core stuff down. And um, right. so it's designed to start a conversation uh, where there can be humble engagement with these topics. Again, like we are, we are four guys um, talking about thousands of years of right. church history culminated in doctrines and, and summarizing the life of, of the most powerful person to ever live, uh, you know, Jesus uh, in in 60 minutes you know so um give us grace and uh we'll do the same to you and um we yeah we kind of encourage you to engage in these conversations with other people with people in the church with people outside the church um and to yeah learn and grow and and see what what scripture has to say about it again going back to where we started scripture is our is our authority and it doesn't talk about everything, but um, everything um, we do believe here is rooted in Scripture. Yeah, We really did just want to lay a foundation of some of the most basic doctrines that we hold to at High Point Church. Um, so we really appreciate you guys listening in. Um, and if, again, if you have any questions, please feel free to ask. We'd love, love to connect with you and, and be able to discuss this all the more. So yeah. thanks, guys. Um, and we'll we'll see you in the next podcast. Bye.